Hi, this is Adam Berger. I'm a attraction show writer and the author of the book Every Guest is a Hero, Disney's Theme Parks and the Magic of Mythic Storytelling. And when I really want to feel re-energized, I listen to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 105 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to Stories of the Magic, we are a positive and story-filled Disney podcast offering stories from cast members, Imagineers, artists, actors, and more, including guests, promoting a mutual love of Disney, celebrating and preserving the Disney magic and legacy, and inspiring people to live their dreams just as Walt Disney did. If that appeals to you or piques your curiosity, you're definitely in the right place, and I'm glad you're here. In this episode, I finally get to share an interview with you that began many months ago. In March of 2015, just a few days before my daughter was born, I interviewed Disney legend and Imagineer Bob Gurr by Skype video. Unfortunately, the video stopped recording about a third of the way through, but I didn't know it until we were all done. Fortunately, Bob was very understanding about the technical issue and was willing to re-record. Of course, my daughter was born less than a week later, and that put all the podcasting stuff completely on hold for a while. Long story short, if it's not too late for that, we finally had a chance to do that re-recording in early December, and now I am sharing part one with you. In this episode, Bob talks about how he got started working for Disney and what he did at first. The first time he met Walt Disney. Walt's lack of formality and the way he talked to people. The bad word I said and Bob's correction of me. The way projects got started and were developed. How they knew they were done, or done enough, with a project. How he became involved in the Matterhorn bobsled's development and some of what he did on it. The place of the Matterhorn in history and how it came to be. Omnimover, the ride system used in the Haunted Mansion, for example, and it being an overused term. The difference between an animatronic and an audio animatronic. The first time he realized they were doing something really special. What he loved most about what he did working for Disney. A preview of a Bob Gurr documentary coming out in 2016. The first project he had as Gurr Design after he was no longer working for Disney in 1981. Some of the jobs that first one led to, like a 24-foot dragon for Universal Studios' Conan the Barbarian show, and a 30-foot tall King Kong. How you get the job for these out-there requests whether he's ever taken on any jobs that were more than he could handle, and if he's ever disappointed when an attraction he designed closes. Now a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and begin this story. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. listen! Hey, hey, Skywalkers, this is Richard, and over here is my sweetie wife, Sarah. You can call me Jedi Tink. And we are Skywalking Through Neverland. Jimmy Mack here. When you wish upon a podcast, wish upon this podcast. These guys are awesome. <laughs> we are a fan-focused podcast that covers Star Wars, Disney, 
pop culture, and their fandom communities. The stuff that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds us all together as instantaneous friends. What do you know? We showcase what people are doing in the world of fandom and talk to those who are involved firsthand in the universes that we love. This is Margaret Carey, Tinkerbell. This is Jeremy Bullock, Boba Fett from Star Wars. Steve Sansweet from Rancho Obi-Wan. Hey, it's James Arnold Taylor, the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi, and I happen to be skywalking through Neverland right now. And I'm skywalking through Neverland. Skywalking through Neverland. I've always hated space travel. (laughs) Skywalking through Neverland is the ultimate expression of fandom. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and our website, skywalkingthroughneverland.com. And remember, Neverland on Alderaan. <laughs> and now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. Today on Stories of the Magic, I again have the pleasure of interviewing a former Imagineer and a Disney legend, which is pretty exciting for me. When you hear Bob Gurr mentioned, it's nearly always said that if it moves on wheels at Disneyland, he probably designed it, and that is true. He was hired to design the Autopia for Disneyland. Over the next few decades, though, he became famous for developing the monorails, submarines, flying saucers, the motorized Main Street vehicles, the Omnimover ride system, and the Matterhorn. But even with all that, he's done so much more. Beyond Disney, he's worked on leisure time spectaculars and fantastical beasts for parks and development all over the world. He created King Kong and Conan Serpent for Universal Studios Hollywood, a UFO for the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympics closing ceremonies, and the memorable sinking pirate ship for the show in front of Treasure Island in Las Vegas. You can find Bob's column, Design, Those Were the Times, on Mice Chat, and he has written a book, Design Just for Fun, though it may be tough to get a copy. Bob, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Stories of the Magic. Well, howdy, here we are again, one of these... Cross-country talks done by, what are we doing, satellite and bounce back or microwave or what? How do we... <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. We're in the cybersphere someplace. <laughs> that's right. We're both in the Ethernet, and that's about what we know. <laughs> I know we're going to venture pretty far afield from this later on, but since this is a Disney podcast, let's start at the usual place. Tell me about how you got started working for Disney and kind of what you did at first. Well, interestingly, uh, Up Iwerks and Walt Disney worked together, and Up Iwerks was one of the customers on my paper route in 1943, 44, 45. He had two sons, an older one, Don, a younger one, Dave. Dave was my age, and we were uh, buddies in uh, school. So I was very familiar with the family, and uh, I would be invited over on Sundays about once a month after church, the family dinner, and Up Iwerks would show a 16-millimeter black-and-white film of the activities that current week on the back lot. One of those movies showed Kurt Russell, not Kurt Russell, a Kirk, um, oh, who's the guy that was, um, Kirk Douglas. Kirk Douglas and his two little boys riding around in a green and white car, which I knew green and white because it's black and white, uh, with the word Disneyland on, ugly little car. And uh, at the same time, there was a, a little chassis on the back lot that had no body on it, so I didn't know what that meant. Then, at about the same time, in the L.A. Times, here comes a photograph of the idea of a new amusement park to be called Disneyland. So uh, within a day or two, I got a call from the location where I was working, an industrial design company, 
Uh, go out and meet uh, Dick Irvine at the Walt Disney Studios in about 20 minutes. Click. Okay, I get in the car and I drive out there and I thought, you don't suppose that little chassis that had no body and the ugly car that said Disneyland and the picture in the LA Times had any relationship. I go out to uh, Buena Vista Street, pull up to the gate and Mr. Irvine is waiting at the gate for me walks me up and takes me to a room and shows me pictures of Disneyland. And they said, we need a body for a little car. Let's go show you the little car. And I thought, aha, that was a good guess. <laughs> so that was the, that was the contact. Went out, looked at the car, saw what we were going to do. I said, I'll make drawings. I'll bring them in on Saturday morning. So uh, over a period of maybe two or three weeks in uh, mid to late October, 1954, I made some sketches, came in on Saturday mornings, left some pictures. I left an invoice, which they paid within about 20 minutes. And I think the third, I guess it was the second Saturday, looking at the little chassis, a couple of guys talking, and another guy walks up, kind of ratty looking, had uh, kind of a little short tie with a funny emblem on it, kind of unshaven. I thought he was uh, father of one of the night guards. We talked about the car, what we're going to do with it. Then as he walked away, everybody said, see you, Walt. And I thought, <laughs> wow, I wonder if that was Walt Disney. So, you know, I never was introduced. But hmm. the following week, I was on the payroll, and I stayed there for 27 years. Wow. That's quite an <laughs> introduction or, or lack of introduction to Walt Disney. <laughs> yes, That's great. Well, yeah, well, you got to realize, there was no formality around Walt in those days. And that's very different from other companies, isn't it? Completely different. It's an entirely different manner of operating. But Walt was a type of fellow that, uh, sure, he had an office, sure, he had layers of management, but he never really went through them. When work was being done on animation, uh, live action movies, television preparation, um, he wandered around and talked to everybody to see what's going on. So he was, I would say, a hands-on, but funny thing, while being hands-on, he was not intrusive. In other words, sure, the movies, he would be, uh, he would be looking at a sweat box and rushes for the day, you know, making comments. But I can only attest to uh, what was he like talking about Disneyland uh, and what I personally saw, along with some of the other uh, budding gang of uh, Imagineers, that, you know, later we were called Imagineers, of course, but Walt was always uh, inquiring about things, not really giving orders. It'd be more like, say, we're thinking of doing, and then he'd say what, what we ought to be doing. And then it was always a conversation like, well, say, uh, uh, you, you think we can do this? So he was always talking to people in an inquiring manner. It was just sort of like that was the standard thing. It was never a major meeting with a staff of people and lawyers and vice presidents. And we make an official announcement and, and issue the orders to all the departments that I never saw evidence of that any time there around Walt. Hmm. Did that, I mean, obviously that helped the development process, but was there ever, ever time, ever a time where you kind let of me wanted? Stop. Well, yes. let me stop you. You said the bad word. I'm sorry. What was that word? process oh okay please correct me you live in this century walt was in the other century 
we really didn't have a process. We did whatever it took to get done what it was we were doing, whether it was a quick little job or a two or three year long expensive thing. Process implies that you've gone to college you're, or you're an MBA and there is a procedure that's by rote and it's sequential and that's called a process. Think about how fast we went because we were never constrained by the concept of process. Okay, I didn't mean to correct you, but that is important. So you'll have to go back to your question now that I completely tripped you all up. <laughs> and I appreciate the correction. I, I, I appreciate the understanding that a, a little bit more. So setting aside the word process then, uh, during these development phases and uh, you know, going from the introduction of whatever it is you guys were going to do to completion, was there ever a time where you really kind of wished that Walt would give more direction than he did, or was what he gave really pretty well fine-tuned to what you guys needed? No, it was never fine-tuned. It was sort of like an opening synopsis, if you will, in which uh, he said, well, here, here's what we're thinking of doing. And sometimes it would be, let's say, for a new specific attraction, let's say like a little viewliner train, or let's say we're looking at a new expansion to an existing area. Well, there would be some drawings he'd have somebody make. Somebody make a little rough model of the area. Um, some people would gather up some, uh, you know, associated information. And then we'd kind of sit down, uh, usually in the model shop. We'd walk over there because that was a pretty good place to talk. And he'd just start uh, kicking around how this might work, how that might work. And, of course, everybody's standing around looking at it. And they automatically see their part. You, you don't stand there and wait for Walt to select you and say, and your part will be, and you are to follow my orders and go do it. No, it was never, never, never like that. It was a, a case of a conversation that sort of went around the room. And the kind of people that Walt collected were the ones that were self-starters. And they could see by the conversation that, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, my gosh, this would be cool if we could do this. Oh, I can see how to do that. In fact, I can see four or five ways to do that. So uh, visualize a whole room full of people that that is the way they worked. That means you have a tremendous amount of progress made uh, very quickly, very naturally, and very easily. You know, and about that time, we'd start getting a little bit more formalized. In other words, we'd have people uh, with their names on projects or names on parts of the project. So that way you had sort of a list of people that when you need an answer in one specific area or another, you knew how to go find them either by phone or run over to a building where you, where you knew they were and go in and ask them. Makes sense. I can see how you really need to know who was working on what, but it sounds like that this development was almost a brainstorming session where everybody was contributing their ideas and then saying, okay, now that we've got this pretty good idea of what direction we're at least going to start going, I see the part that I can play to make that happen. Yeah, I think your word uh, brainstorm is pretty good because uh, visualize a sort of ongoing brainstorm every day uh, in a very, very informal manner. Uh, more of the contacts with Walt was by Walt walking to the place you were working, particularly the model shop. You used to love to go over the model shop because that's where things were becoming visible. Mm -hmm. uh, I have very little recollection of where we actually were called to a meeting in what would look like a meeting room. Uh, 
Uh, very seldom did I see that until later on in the company where we got into Walt Disney World, of course, which is a massive project. Right. Then it became a lot more formalized. But in the uh, the 12 years that I work with Walt, I'm, I'm relating to you what I saw. I appreciate that. That's exactly what I want to hear. And... Uh, this might be a, a silly question, but I'm going to ask it, and you can correct me if it is. Uh, how did you know when you guys were done? Like, you, you started, and it was sort of this ongoing brainstorming. How did you know when you had finished what you were trying to accomplish? Well, the media was there, and the band was playing, and Walt was all dressed up, and we were down <laughs> at the park. <laughs> it was pretty blunt. <laughs> there you go. So you, you had this ongoing brainstorming, but there was still a delivery date like we have to be done with it by this point well yes the interesting thing when walt would start a project he would uh specify the opening date uh, before we start <laughs> so you were on the clock right away oh everybody had a very good picture of what they're facing i don't ever recall uh, a new attraction that i didn't get involved in that didn't have a date uh, because Walt always set up the media. You know, media's going to come and make arrangements. The band's going to play. All the uh, publicity coverage. He was very, he had guys that that's what they did. You know, well, here's the date. Okay, you guys go get that stuff ready, and then we'll get it all built, and then the vendors bring it in, or we bring it down from the shops in Burbank and put it in there. But that didn't necessarily mean we were finished. We were finished enough that the press could get their stuff and the invited guests could go for a ride on it, and then the next morning, we're out there um, repairing little stuff, and we're continuing to add stuff. We had a, a expression around there all the time. It's called "plus it at the park." Now, "plus it at the park" was actually um, a very clever trick. A budget runs until the opening day. After the opening day, it is a maintenance budget, and the project budget is wet enterprises and the maintenance budget is disneyland's budget uh -huh. <laughs> uh -huh. anything that wasn't finished is now a maintenance item on their budget <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we would have sometimes months of continuing uh, follow-up to uh, get everything to work uh, uh, in the way we wanted it to work you follow, follow that kind of a relationship and a company that had different pieces of the company <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> so and you know, on that subject of having an opening date for something and then just having to to push for it i've heard a story and i figure of anybody i've ever talked to you're probably the one who can tell me whether this really happened or not uh, did walt disney really send a postcard back from zermatt switzerland with a picture of the matterhorn on it and a note on the back that said build this uh, I've heard that story. Since I was not a part of that story, uh, there's uh, nothing I can uh, uh, add to that. Okay. So it may or may not have happened, but we can't say for sure one way or well, the other. Well, I do know what happened. He walked into my office when he came back, and he had pictures of bobsleds and said, uh, well, Bobby, we're going to build a roller coaster, and it's going to be uh, uh, like a bobsled, but we're not going to use ice. We're going to use wheels. And I'd like to get to get you to get started on it. That was that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> and that gave you enough to know what your first step was going to be to figure this out. Sure. Yes, because a couple of days later, uh, I learned that uh, Fred Jurger, our model builder, had built a, a scale model of the Matterhorn Mountain in a shape that Walt kind of liked, and um, 
it was going to have uh, a roller coaster inside. And of course, the Skyway was going to go through the mountain. And then uh, within another day or two, Walt uh, talked to me and he says, uh, Say, Bobby, we're going to have a roller coaster in there. And uh, said, Well, just put two tracks in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, historically, roller coasters are always built out of wood. And they were out in the open air so that you could see the structure and you could see where the cars are by eye. Mm -hmm. Well, nobody had ever had the idea to hide a roller coaster inside a cone, a white cone, and then have a hole in it where a sky ride went through it. And then, uh, oh, by the way, build uh, two tracks and then have the lift also on the inside. So that became uh, uh, quite a a configurational problem that I, I found myself with. How did you take that configurational problem and come up with a working design? Well, in hindsight, um, I could see that uh, I did stuff entirely different than most people. Uh, Now, you remember at that time, there was no computers. We had no CGI, nothing like that. I had a drafting board and I had paper and pencil. That's all that's all it takes. And I had to design a plan view of the uh, where the track is. Then I'd have to do a side view of the slope of the track. So this meant there was two drawings always in progress. Now, interestingly, um, I could visualize m- m- multiple objects in space and see their relationships, much like what people would do today and say like a wireframe construct or a very preliminary type of animation of uh, structures and, and move it around on a screen. Well, I, I could move these around in my head, and I could visualize tracks intertwining. I could visualize uh, swept area clearances around a vehicle and its uh, passengers. I could then uh, visualize the steel structure, you know, main vertical columns that would have to go up through all this stuff, so my daily work was basically making uh, drawings in plan view with a uh, compass and a pencil. And uh, on a side view, keep track of this, what we call a neutral slope, where the track goes up, goes down, goes up, goes down, but it never goes back up above the neutral slope. So I'm inching along with these two tracks, uh, the neutral slope side drawing, and at the same time trying to make sure I've got room between all this spaghetti that I've got uh, steel columns vertically. Well, it turned out I was drawing a track a day because uh, none of the steel patterns I had would work. But after, uh, I'd say maybe within a week, I had a a certain pattern of vertical steel that I could get the majority of the track outside the vertical steel columns. And that, what that meant, the rest of the structure are secondary. It's going to be a lot easier to plan that. So that was the basis of the design of the foundation for the uh, concrete piers that would hold up uh, the steel, that would hold up the building. Uh, also, at the same time, we moved so fast, I didn't realize until a couple of days later that the engineer that we were working with at the park, every time I gave him a coordinate of steel uh, placement, like say 20 by 20 foot, 18 by 19 foot, something like that, they built uh, wooden forms for pouring the concrete. And then every day I gave them a new set of coordinates by the end of the day. And they would simply cut up some of the wood and they'd move it a few feet here and there and then re- reposition everything. Because the day I told them that I've got a pattern that works, 
they phoned and I said, yeah, that's going to work. And then they phoned back and they said, well, don't change a thing. The transit mix trucks are on their way with the concrete. We're for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the speed with which uh, everybody worked on a job. Wow, that's that's incredible speed, especially when we see today how long it takes to do things. I just can't imagine being able to work that fast to accomplish yeah. what you guys did. Well, what it turned out was uh, we already had the design of the car along pretty good. I did a preliminary drawing. That aero development had been given the job by Walt. They were going to build it, whatever it was we came up with. So uh, they took my basic concept of the car and engineered the car. They took my basic track layout, and then from that, they then built the actual uh, sections of steel track, which they manufactured, brought down, and connected, and installed. Okay. And, of course, a lot most people who are familiar with the history of roller coasters or the history of the Matterhorn know that it's the first tubular steel coaster, and that it is so out of necessity more than out of trying to come up with some newfangled thing. You, just, you did what you had to do, and tubular steel is what was going to get the job done. Well, yes. Our roller coasters, as I mentioned before, were usually wooden structures that the top of the track and the side of the track and the bottom up stop uh, track were steel plates bent and screwed into place into wood, kind of a, a you know a kind of a wiggly semi-flexible structure. Uh, we looked at using angle iron as a track, and we made a short test track in the shop, and uh, it was absolutely not going to work. So Air Development took a look at at the time. Uh, that they had between now and when it opens and said, well, we'll use pipe. Pipe is cheap. Well, how are you going to bend that? Well, there aren't any giant pipe benders, the ones that will do compound bends every which way. They said, well, okay, well, just we'll, we'll just invent a pipe bender. It was the simplest cuckoo-looking thing you ever saw. It's kind of a little portable. It's like a pipe squeezer, like as you had two fingers hold the spaghetti and the thumb pushes in the middle of the spaghetti, and you now bent the pipe. So it was real simple. Yeah. So the the first steel pipe coaster was, as you say, out of necessity because that was the one that had the biggest chance of being the cheapest and could get get built the fastest. Okay. Very cool. So uh, we don't, we don't mind inventing something of the first of, even though we didn't start out to invent it. But we'll we'll take to still take the thanks for it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, speaking of inventing things, uh, you also invented the Omnimover ride system. Yes. Yeah. And I've heard you say before that Omnimover is an overused term when it comes to ride conveyances. Uh, that people are calling things Omnimover that are not. Yes, that's completely correct. You have to go back in history a little bit. When uh, phonograph records were made, and there was actually a machine called a phonograph, usually had a wind-up handle sticking out of the side of the box, uh, the first company that was successful marketing those was the Victor Company. And they had a symbol, their brand was a little dog with a cocked ear looking into a sound cone. And so Victor, ergo, Victrola. All right, for... Maybe a couple of decades, anybody's uh, phonograph machine was automatically referred to as a Victrola. Next one was, today, nobody ever asks for a facial tissue. They said, you got some Kleenex? Right. (laughs) Well, it happened to be the Kleenex brand was the first dominant one that was marketed. Therefore, all facial tissues are always called Kleenex, no matter who makes them. So... 
any vehicle system that had a uh, series of cars on a track, particularly where they're uh, interconnected, is automatically called an Omnimover, no matter what details they're made of. So I do have to accept that I invented a brand name, even though everybody else uses the brand name for their machine. <laughs> so can you give me an example of something that we would see in the parks today that people call an Omnimover but is not? Uh, well, let's say the General Motors uh, attractions at uh, Walt Disney World originally was an endless train of vehicles. The Space Mountain is an endless train of vehicles. Um, those are a couple of primary ones where you have a track and you have a chain of vehicles. And people look and they say, oh, yeah, see, they all follow one another. They're like, they're like elephants with trunks grabbing tails and away they go. Gosh, that's an Omnimover because we know Omnimovers are – that, well, that's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> Is there any way to tell the difference without being you, for example, between something that really is an Omnimover and something that just looks like one? Well, certainly anybody who wanted to inquire from a technical standpoint uh, to have somebody actually show them in the machine or show them uh, technical drawings or show them photographs of the machinery and if that person, say a layperson that still had an understanding of uh, what they're looking at, most people don't. They just look and say, oh, oh, it's too much stuff. I don't know what the heck that is. Then they'll believe anything they're told. But if somebody would take the time to show them specific differences, uh, then they could see, oh, yeah. Well, then it's Omnimover-like. Okay. So you can't necessarily see from the top, but if you can see the mechanics, then you would be able to tell uh, if you were able to understand the, that kind of machinery or someone explained it to you. Oh, that's completely correct, yes. Because uh, our Omnimover systems, well, you know, we've had uh, different cars. Uh, you know, we did one, a little Delta Dream flight. The cars are a bit different there. Uh, several right, we were related exactly the same way. So you can't tell by looking at the body. You have to look at the uh, underneath the floor and look at the specific uh, conveyor machinery itself. Okay, Okay, good. That makes sense, and it relieves me to know that if I look at something and can't tell, that there's a good reason for that. I, I yeah. wouldn't necessarily be able to. Yeah, it, you know, like uh, like uh, software designers, uh, you can't see what they do because it's very ethereal, and it's all a bunch of electricity running around in space, and you can't even grab it. Uh, machinery, you can see it and grab it, but it's still something that most people don't know what in the world they're looking at. So. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an advantage to have the power of being a mechanical designer and only telling people half the story. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let me ask one more distinction question of you, and then I'll, we'll move on to something else. Um, and this is, might be self-evident, but I've gotten mixed information on this. Uh, I've heard competing explanations of what the difference is between an animatronic and an audio animatronic. <laughs> Audio animatronic is a trade name created within the Walt Disney Company uh, to describe a family of uh, devices generally that had previously been referred to as robots. Uh, robot is a word that's been around forever, and to distinguish our quote-unquote robots from everybody else's robots and the fact that they combine motion 
with uh, uh, with uh, uh, sound, someone coined the word audio animatronics. So that's strictly a uh, trade name, but people have stolen the word and used it because, you know, again, it's like Kleenex. You can apply it to uh, almost anything. When generally speaking, animations of all sorts, when I'm saying, let's say I'm talking about mechanical animations as opposed to, say, a film animation or CGI animation, mm -hmm. but let's say the mechanical, physical animations, they generally always will have uh, sound portions of a show uh, to do with it. So that way, generally an animated figure, whether it's an elephant or a little tiny bird, generally involves sound and vision. Okay. The other explanation I had heard is that there was, uh, basically the, the motion was controlled by an audio track that activated the actuators and things. That is not the actual definition then, correct? Uh, it's yes and no. Okay. Because uh, as time uh, progressed from, say, 1954 with the first attempts of having uh, what we would then call programmed animation, all the way up to today where there is programmed animation, but in the early days, this would be done with a physical rotating cam and uh, levers and cables. Then in the middle years, it would be done with uh, switches, a device called a potentiometer, and that would be done with cams. Then after, and then drum timers, and then pretty soon it's on a um, a uh, analog uh, disc. Then pretty soon it's on a digital disc. Then eventually it was put on a uh, solid state drive or a stick drive. Nowadays, there's a lot of animation that are little tiny boxes with little stick drives, and we'll run an entire show off of it. So the principle is still exactly the same. There is a device, and that device is controlled by a box of some magic stuff, which used to be very big and very expensive, which today anybody can go to a supplier and simply buy them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. That makes sense. Thank you for clarifying that for me. I appreciate that. So I want to ask a couple of kind of broad questions about Disney, and then I want to move in for as much time as we can into your post-Disney career, since that's what people don't usually get to hear about. Uh, was there a time while you were working for Disney, kind of a first time where you remember thinking, wow, we're doing something really special here. What I'm doing is really unique. I, I think right from the get-go... Uh, that was my impression from the time I saw the picture in the L.A. Times and then went over to the studio and saw that there was a little car. And beside that little car, there was this big amusement park with all that's involved in it. I'd never seen such a thing. And then, of course, the 12 years that I uh, uh, worked with Walt and then, of course, uh, all the rest of the years until 1981, almost everything we were asked to do had never been done. So in other words, we weren't repeating a modification of something else. We were always coming up with new configurations. Mm -hmm. of course, uh, pretty much today, uh, Disney and Universal and many other companies have continued to do that. And then, of course, after 1981, when I was operating as Gur Design, almost all the things that were brought to me were in the category of having never been done or let's say maybe not been done on the scale that I would do it. Let's say an animation is six foot tall and somebody says, no, Bob, it's 30 foot tall. 
So that's an entire uh, uh, magnitude change. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, virtually everything I was involved in was a brand new, never been done, and I thrived on it. So would you say that that's the, the aspect of what you did that you loved most, or was there something else that you loved most about what you did? No, I like the uh, idea of seeing something come to life that had never existed. And the fact that uh, as time went along, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, I just did it. I didn't give any thought to how I did it. I just did it. And then in later years, everybody comes along and says, yeah, Bob, we know you did it. But why don't you tell us how you did it? Well, the how I did it, now that gets very touchy because somebody would say, you know, they'd sit over to the side and they says, Madam, why are you asking that? He's a doggone genius. Don't you understand? (laughs) (laughs) So, you see, I'm put in a position where I can't answer the question and I can't explain how I do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me cut to the chase and put it this way. The very famous photographer, George Harrell, uh, did all those beautiful black and white photographs of all the stars of the 1930s, early 40s. Beautiful work. Just before the guy died, somebody pinned him down one more time because George was self-taught. And uh, and they said, well, George, well, tell us how you really did this stuff. And he got so irritated, he looked at the person and said, and well, without the four-letter words, he says, I'm a genius. I taught myself and I did the whole thing. And that's that. Well, okay. when I... When I read that years ago, I said, hmm, I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so it is it is a tender area, which I would rather have other people explain. Uh, in fact, if you want to have a little um, uh, sort of a preview, next year, a Bob Gerd documentary will appear in which eight uh, people of quite a bit of renown were on camera about a year and a half ago explaining how they thought I did stuff. So it's going to be for others to explain how I did this stuff. Interesting. But I think you got my drift early. (laughs) Indeed I did. (laughs) And speaking of touchy subjects, I hope you don't mind me asking this question, but what was it like for you when Walt Disney died? I'm not going to answer the question. Okay, fair enough. So let's move on to your post-Disney career then. You said you worked for the company until 81, and uh, then you moved on to GER Design. Uh, What was the first project you had after working for the Walt Disney Company? Well, GER Design was formed in about two weeks uh, in August 1981, uh, immediately after I was advised by the Wet Enterprises Company to seek a career in another company. So that is kind of a code word for you better leave in about two weeks, fella. Right. And that gave me the two weeks to go out and incorporate myself as a California 1244 stock corporation. And the day before my two weeks was up, I was the president of the Gur Design Corporation. A very first job was uh, to look at uh, animated uh, uh, theaters for like uh, like a Chuck E. Cheese type restaurants. There was a company called Animated uh, uh, Animated Playhouses 
uh, also located in the San Fernando Valley, not too far from Disney, that was desirous of having somebody come in and uh, try to work out some of the mechanical designs. Well, some of that work led on to doing jobs for Universal Studios, such as the Conan, Conan Swords and Sorcery Show, where uh, Universal needed a 24-foot fire-breathing dragon. Well, that sounds like a normal job. You oh, know. sure. <laughs> uh, oh, and they also wanted an elevator to be designed to fit the uh, creature in a, a already uh, poured concrete pit. You know, big elevator shaft. So, okay, well, that's all right. You have the head of the dragon. Well, you got a body of a dragon. You got a dragon elevator, and you got a fire that's going to come out its come out its mouth. Well, that is very interesting, and there was a lot of ways to do it. It was a fast moving job, and I was just I just couldn't wait to to do it. We didn't have any trouble with it. We just built it, tested, put it in, and it and it ran beautifully for the years that it was there. And it really did throw fire. I mean. We had a fire company that knew how to do that, and they did a really, really super job. But the animation itself was a very, very simple uh, device. And, of course, that leads to uh, later years. Universal said, oh, gee, 24-foot dragon. Okay, girl, we want a 30-foot tall uh, King Kong. <laughs> oh, okay, that's not that much taller, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it turned out. No, really, the bigger a machine gets, the more space there is on the inside and the greater flexibility you have to design the uh, the stru main structures and all the motion work. So that was a machine that weighed, uh, I think it was about 13,800 pounds, had 660 pounds of fur on it, 30 feet tall. And again, because of the, of the, the way I designed it, it was... Um, a very simple figure. Um, I have a scale model of it, one inch to the foot. That's all articulate. I can I can show it to people, show it how it works. In wow. fact, it will it will appear in the documentary next year and show us <laughs> how that thing is done. But you can see, let's say a thirty foot magnitude of a creature like that. This this becomes sort of the standard kind of work I like to do. And of course, you know this attracts uh, even more crackpots that come along with you know what they want. You know, Michael Jackson comes along and says, "I need a um, a custom lighting device for my uh, 1984 Victory Show." You know, and that job spawns another one. A guy says, "I need a 50-foot um, flying saucer for the closing ceremonies of the Olympics in 1984." Okay, boy, that sounds interesting. I'd like to do that one. You know, which I did. The company I was worth at that time went bankrupt on that day that we were given the job. And I said, well, what the heck? I got Gur Design. We'll just do it under Gur Design. So everybody came and worked for me for for about, uh, that was about five weeks. Michael Jackson job, that only lasted nine weeks. High-speed job. Flying saucer, that only was five weeks. High-speed job. Then you'd get into other jobs. You know, Steven Spielberg phones me up and says, I got I to gotta build a 30-foot-tall um, a Tyrannosaurus Rex, can you come and help? Yeah, okay, I'll help you with that. And then he got um, uh, Stan Winston's shop to build it. And then here comes another guy up in Las Vegas, Steve Wynn. He says, I want to sink a pirate ship on the boulevard, not hidden behind a curtain. And since it's out in the street, it can't fail. And it's underwater, it's got fire and, and propane and electricity and live people. Okay. Yeah, there's quite a few ways to do that. 
So that's how you get the job. It looks interesting. You say yes. And then you go out the door and says, oh, my God, how, how are we going to do this? But you already know part of it. You see how to get it started. And then every day you you add more to what you need to know. And you, and you just work your way through those jobs just like that. So that's a long-winded answer of what was your first job. They, they all, it's, a, it's one blend after another, a whole bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there any of those jobs that you've taken where you look at it and say, sure, and then either – right then or as you start to get into the development of it you think oh this might actually be more than we can handle i don't know if we're going to be able to pull this one off i have never taken one of those jobs because i refuse them when i see them coming so you can recognize up front i this is not going to happen no there's a lot of people in uh in these industries that uh they've they're experienced enough even though they're hungry you know they a lot of people lower the price till they get it and then just Guess what? You just committed financial suicide because now you got to give a discount to everybody and you, you'll, you'll eventually die anyway with it. No, you have to have sense enough of when somebody's asking for something that's a little bit too far out. Um, when I was at Sequoia Creative, we were uh, helping Universal with uh, two more King Kongs for Universal Florida, and they were going to do a job called JAWS. Mm-hmm. And the Jaws thing, they were very, very excited over it. And they brought up all the drawings one day of all the show action equipment. It was, looked like it'd be about, man, maybe $3 million worth of work, which we certainly could use. I've studied all of the uh, proposal drawings of all of the devices that they wanted. And the next morning, uh, when Larry Lester from Universal came out there, just all smiles, ready to accept our bid. And I said, Larry, I'm going to no bid it. Uh, the guy about had a heart attack because they, they assumed that, well, Gurdon never turns anything down. Well, you brought me one that I won't touch. Of course, it led to uh, some, uh, um, you know, evaluation work and retro work uh, in the months after it didn't work when another company built it. Incidentally, the other company that built it, the president of that company, was one of the guys that fired me from Disney. So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so the, you know it's it's interesting how this stuff works, but uh, but no, but but specifically, you're supposed to be smart enough to know a dumb job when you see it coming, even though um, uh, you'd like to have the money. Mm, sure, yeah. And are any of these projects that you worked on that have since closed? Because I know, like King Kong, there was a fire, and the I don't, I'm not sure if the uh, pirate ship at Treasure Island is still there or not. Uh, but I know there's been others that have closed. Are there any that you're particularly sad to see go when they close? No, you know, uh, you know, time marches on, technology marches on. Uh, uh, I'm not sad at all if an attraction is sort of, uh, you know, run through its uh, its prime time. Uh, obviously, the sinking ship ran, uh, I think, about 14 years. And the company that owned that hotel wanted to put in more revenue space at the front of the building and take the ship out. Well, that's a good decision. Sure, I don't mind that it's gone. In the case of King Kong, everybody says, oh, Bob, aren't you so sad? And I'd say, well, heck, no. Uh, King Kong went out in a blaze of glory at age 22. (laughs) All right, here's the parallel. What year, what age was James Dean when he died? I'm going to say 22. And would anybody today go see an 84-year-old James Dean in a movie? <laughs> no, I don't think so. 
So I think uh, I think the king went out um, in in such a fabulous pyre of flames. That is the best life you could get. Oh, absolutely. So that makes me think. Then, do you have generally an estimated lifespan for these things when you build them? Like we expect it to work for this long, and then it's probably going to have to be replaced with something else. No, I don't. Uh, I don't recall we ever had any specific idea of that because generally. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Bob Gurr for being my guest twice, and to you for listening. Next time we'll be talking even more about the Gurr design period in Bob's career, as well as his advice, insights into helping kids learn, and much more. I'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Choose from titles like my book, Faith and the Magic Kingdom. You can pick that one or any of the 180,000 plus audiobooks as your free trial book, and it's yours to keep, whether you choose to continue your membership or not. To download your free audiobook today, go to storiesofthemagic.com slash audible. Again, that's storiesofthemagic.com slash audible for your free audiobook. If you're currently doing something because of your love for Disney, you've written a book, created a website, you're blogging, writing, or performing music, art, whatever it may be, and you want to tell people about it and why it matters to you, I want to hear from you. I also want to talk to and hear from people who've worked for Disney, and if you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience, and you've had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, and you want to give a compliment or a thank you, even for anything Disney's done, I'd love to hear from you, too. Maybe you have a special memory of experiencing one of the attractions that we talked about that Bob worked on or designed, and you want to talk about why it was a special memory for you. For any of these, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, the Xbox Music Store, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. And soon you'll be able to get Stories of the Magic through the Google Play Music app, or Google Play Music Store. I actually don't know which... It is what they're calling it, but whatever it is, the podcast has been approved. And as soon as Google launches their podcast app through this, this one will be right there from the beginning. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever else you listen to the show and can rate it. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash stories of the magic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash stories of magic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic too. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. 
Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.